Well, good morning, church. Uh, take your Bible this morning and turn to James chapter 4. Uh, James chapter 4, we've had a good weekend here at the church. Uh, finished up our Upward League yesterday, our Upward season. And uh, it was a great uh, just finale uh, to the season. Appreciate all of the hard work from all of the volunteers. Thank you so much for giving up. I think I've got a hot mic. If you could turn that down. Um, just turn my mic down just a little bit. Thank you. Uh, but thank you to all of our volunteers who uh, made Upward uh, just a, a success. And then also want to say a special thank you to uh, Brandon Zortman, our Minister of Sports Ministries, for doing a great job uh, leading Upward. So uh, we spent, they spent the season uh, pouring into uh, families, pouring into kids. Uh, it's a, a league that teaches kids skills about basketball, but it's way more than that. It's pointing kids to Jesus. And so a lot of Bible lessons were invested a lot of great devotions were shared, and a lot of unchurched people heard those. And so just pray that the seeds that were planted, uh, that they'll produce fruit. And it's just a growing ministry. Last uh, year, I think there was around 40 players in uh, the 40 players and cheerleaders in the league. And uh, this year, there was over 80. So it's a growing ministry. God's using it. And uh, they ended the day yesterday with a basketball game, a uh, coach's basketball game. And uh, somebody talked me into doing that, and I'm paying the price today, man. <laughs> Paying the price. So got out of bed, uh, walking a little bit like Frankenstein this morning. Uh, but turn to James chapter 4, and uh, we'll be walking through the book of James on, uh, uh, continuing to walk through the book of James on Sunday mornings. And uh, remember James, the author of this book, of course, is the younger, the little uh, half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine what it was like growing up as Jesus' younger brother, right? Just think about that. Shared room, maybe. Shared bunk beds with Jesus. A bathroom with Jesus. Walked to school with Jesus. Sat at the breakfast table. Ate cereal with Jesus. He hung up. He hung around. and was. A, can you imagine what it would have been like to be the younger brother of Christ, right? You imagine that his mom uh, at times was like, James, why can't you be like your older brother? Seriously. Uh, he's like, he, really? He's the Lord, right? I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, except James didn't really believe he was the Lord for a while. Uh, James was not convinced. In fact, James, along with uh, some of his other family members, thought that Jesus had lost his mind. They thought that he was crazy. They tried to pull him away from the crowd at one point. Uh, like, hey, just don't listen to my brother talking about that he's God. We're not sure he's right in the head, right? And so he was completely uh, not convinced that Jesus was God. Um, and if you were the younger brother of an older brother, other sib uh, older sibling who went around claiming that they were God, what would it take for you to believe that they were God? A pretty convincing miracle, right? And that's exactly what James experienced and what he witnessed. He saw his older brother, Jesus, uh, go to the cross and watched him before his own eyes die and then watched him undeniably raised from the dead. And the resurrection is what convinced him, right? You want to talk about a pretty good piece of evidence for the validity of a historical resurrection is when the younger brother believes that the older brother who said he's God is God. And he believed that because he saw him. In his resurrected body, he became a disciple of Christ, a great uh, leader in the uh, church in Jerusalem, and uh, wrote this uh, wonderful letter that ministered to the hearts and encouraged the lives of disciples then. And here, 2,000 years later, continues uh, to uh, impact our lives as believers. Now, the biggest takeaway, probably out of James, and you pick this up if you've been with us uh, during this uh, study, is this that when the gospel is truly taken root, it is going to produce evident fruit in your life. When the gospel is truly taken root in your life, it's going to produce evident fruit. Authentic faith is going to show up 
in real, noticeable, evident ways. Authentic faith is going to show up in the way you talk, in the way you react, in the way uh, you talk, talk and walk, in your attitude. And last week we looked specifically at one thing that is an essential mark of authentic faith, and that's humility. All right, humility. Authentic disciples are humble disciples, all right? And we learned how God gives grace to the humble, all right? And in this section, uh, James is going to expound on that, that God calls us to humility. He calls us to be humble, and we need to walk in humility so that we can walk in His grace, right? He gives grace to the humble, but He encourages us to walk in humility, and He comes at it from a different angle in this passage by rebuking arrogance, by rebuking arrogance. And watch this. This is what He's going to show us, is that... People who deal with arrogance often are tempted and they wander or they uh, step into seasons of arrogance, often in seasons where they are experiencing affluence. People often struggle with the sin of arrogance when they are experiencing affluence. All right, so the next two passages, this, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, James is addressing two groups of people. In the first passage, there are businessmen who are affluent, making money. Business is going good. Second passage is going to, he's addressing, we're going to look at this next week, uh, landowners who are cruel. And in both of those, you've got affluent people who are being tempted to sin each in a different way. But both being tempted to sin you know, out of a season of affluence. In the first section that we're going to look at this morning was arrogance. In the second section we're going to look at next week was greed. Both don't belong in the life of a believer. And that's why James is addressing it. And so in the first, uh, last few verses of this passage, we're going to look at an affluent people who are guilty of the sin of arrogance, right? And maybe you're like, well, okay, next, the next two weeks, this addresses affluent people. I'm just going to kick back and relax because I ain't affluent, all right? I, I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. And I would say not so fast. All right, we are richly blessed to live in the country we get to live in. Right. The problems, I know it's not, nowhere is a perfect place to live because we live in a broken world and our nation's broken in many ways, in a lot of ways. But even still, it's, there is grace that you get to live in just by simply living in the country you get to exist in. Think about the technology that we get to experience, right? Just the incre- we live in the most technologically advanced age ever. And like we kind of yawn at that, right? Uh, so some of you remember the cartoon, The Jetsons? Remember The Jetsons when it was like they would, all this futuristic stuff. They were like looking forward to uh, times like this, right? Um, and so they, uh, you know, depicted the future in a certain way. And remember when they, they'd have a video call and somebody would come up and they were on the video and they were talking, how futuristic that felt. And yet some of you, a day doesn't go by that you're not on a video call, Right? We, we exist in, incredible, in an incredible time and, and get to uh, experience incredible technology. So we're spoiled in a way, right? We're spoiled with the opportunities that surround us to build businesses, to, to make money, to have jobs. Uh, we, uh, the opportunity that we have with technology, you, you still you're like, okay, I get it, I get it, okay, I get it. I, you know, we're around you know, a lot of technology, but affluent, I'm not sure that I'm affluent. Well, compared to who? What should I think this morning? If you drove to church this morning in a car... If you have another car at your home right now, if you, have a, if you open your closet this morning and it took you longer than just a few seconds to choose what you were going to wear because you have more than one change of clothes, you have multiple outfits and multiple changes of clothes, if you'll eat more than once today, which most of us will, 
If you have more than one Bible in your possession, if you have a food, if you have a fridge full of food this morning, can I tell you something? Compared to the rest of the world, you're rich. In Nepal, did you know, you know what the average income a, a year uh, for an average person there is? You know what it is? A year? $185. Think about that. When we hear rich, we think about the one percenters, right? We think about the multimillionaires. We think about the billionaires. But there are people, a lot of people, the majority of the world, when they think of rich people, they think of you. They think of people who live where we live, who get to enjoy the blessings that we get to enjoy every single day, but often take for granted. So I want, you to, I want that to sink in. So a little bit of a lengthy intro because this is introing the next two weeks. But as, maybe as poor as you feel going to the gas pump this morning, as financially strapped as you felt going through, going down the aisle at the grocery store this week, make no mistake, compared to the rest of the world, here in America, we are affluent people. Now, here's the thing. With affluence, it, it can give us a great opportunity to leverage those resources and leverage those blessings for the kingdom of God and for the cause of Christ, or it can serve as a great temptation that can lead us into sins of greed or as we'll see this morning, arrogance, arrogance. Why? Because when we live in an affluent culture, it's easy to go out into this world and to live, try to live a life without God, to, not, to live a life not desperately dependent on His Spirit with every step we take because we get too big for our britches and we think we're more of a big deal than we are. And that's what James is confronting here. Stand with your Bibles open. Beginning in verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Would you have a seat as I pray? Holy Spirit, I pray that you come speak to us this morning, God. Lord, we're thankful that in a world that is so confused about truth, denies the existence of absolute truth, Lord, you've given us your word, which is truth. Lord, in a world full of so much bad news, Lord, we're thankful that this morning we can rest our hearts and saturate our hearts in good news. The good news that is communicated to us through this word. That you sent your son to die for us on the cross. You sent your son to finish the work that we could not ever even come close to finishing. You've done it. You've completed it. And you've given us a relationship with you. We're thankful for your grace this morning. And we're thankful, Lord, that you haven't only just saved us from hell and saved us from an eternity separated from you because of the blood of Christ. But by your grace, you've started a work in us that you'll finish. And you will not let us live comfortably with sin in our life. And we're thankful for that. And thankful for books like James that calls those things to center stage, things that need to change. We're thankful for your word. I heard you use it to shape us, to prune us, to, to transform us more into the image of your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 
Hopefully the point's been made that with great affluence comes great temptation to be arrogant and needy. All right, and so this week we're looking at arrogance, and that's what we see in this first group of people, and these businessmen who are making their plans, is they have slid into a mindset, into a heart attitude of arrogance. And so here's the big point. This is what James is making here. He's giving a warning. He's saying, beware as a disciple of a life of arrogance, especially when you live in a culture or in a season of affluence. Let's look at the beginning of verse 13. He said the passage begins, and it begins the same way in both of these passages. We'll look at the beginning of chapter 5 next week. Both of them start with that phrase, come now. Come now, all right? So that's a, he's getting sarcastic. So James is a little feisty. He gets up in your face, and he's being sarcastic right here. That's the same. When he says come now, he's basically, it's like the same way you say sometimes maybe even to your kids, are you serious? Like, come on, Really? Like, you you should know better than this, and they should know better than this. He's talking to Christian businessmen. You say, well, how do you know that? We know that with certainty right here because in verse 17, he's making the point, y'all know better than this. You're not doing things that you know you should do, and that's sin. And that's wrong. And what do they, what, what do they know better? What should they do? What are, what are they not doing? That they, they, they aren't trusting God. They aren't depending on God. What are they doing wrong? They're presuming on God. He says, you're presuming on God. You're arrogant in the way you're making your plans. And they may respond with, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if, you know, we're, we're just planning. We're trying to be responsible. We're trying to be organized, trying to work hard, trying to provide for our family. Hey, and there's nothing, what James would say, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Planning is a good thing. Organizing is a good thing. Working hard is a good thing. And in both of these passages, in all passages that you come to, you need to make sure you are very careful to eliminate what the author is not saying. Sometimes it can get confusing. What he is not condemning right here is hard work. In the next passage, he is not condemning making money. This is not James going on an anti-capitalism rant, as some people have tried to twist this into. That's not James' point this week and next week. He's not condemning hard work or making money or being entrepreneurial or being industrious or, or working hard or saving or making a profit. In fact, the Bible doesn't condemn working hard. It actually commends that. It's a sin to not work hard. Work is not something that was a result of the fall. Right? Adam and Eve, they were workers. They worked in the garden. Right? Procrastination and laziness and a bad work ethic is a result of the fall. In heaven one day, we're going to be working. And it's not going to be hard. It's not going to be the, the burden that it is in this broken world. But we'll be able to worship God in, in pureness and in complete obedience and with joy all throughout eternity with the work that he gives us then. He's not condemning work. It commends a working hard. The problem right here is with presumption. The person is making their plans without dependence on God. They're making plans like they are in control of their life. They're, they're making plans like they have the world by the tail and they're blind to the truth that arrogance has them by the neck. That's what's happening right here. You see in verse 13, you see it there in the way that they are talking. They say, we will, right? He says, we will go here. We will do this. We will in a year accomplish this. Not we might, not it's possible. They're not using uh, what the instruction that James is going to give them here. If the Lord wills, they say, this will happen. This is my plan. And how often, even today, especially when we experience any level of affluence that we start to presume on a lot of things, we don't pray like we ought to pray, we don't look to God like we ought to look to God, we don't depend on Him. Maybe there was a time in these guys' lives where things were less steady, where things were more rocky, 
where things were more difficult, where they were acknowledging and aware of the sovereignty of God and how small they were and how in need of God that they were. Hey, but business is picking up, man. Oh, the bills are being paid. They're saving. And you can hear the pride creeping in and the way that they're talking, how he's giving this financial forecast, right, about the way that his life is going to operate in the next year with no mention of God. It drips with arrogance, right? A year from now, he's saying, my business is going to be great. It's going to be fine. Yeah, we're going to be making this money. Interest is going to be down. The economy is going to be good. It's going to be healthy. We're going to make piles and piles of money. Business is going to be awesome. It drips with an arrogant attitude of this. I got this. I got this under control. And what's happening here is God, the one they should be depending on, whose will they should be more concerned about than anything else, or is relegated over here into this box. It's kind of like a 911 God. Hey, God, you don't call me, I'll call you. If things get out of hand, I'll call you if there's an emergency. And James is showing up right here and saying, you cannot do that. It's an arrogant attitude. What James is showing us here is when we live like that, when we live like God's not a factor in our decision-making and we live as if tomorrow is guaranteed, he's saying it's foolish. It's foolish. And here's why. Two quick reasons why this morning this is a foolish way to live with this kind of arrogance. Number one is this. We don't know the future. We don't know the future. Okay, so the, the first thing here, a reason why we shouldn't do this, a reason why this is foolish, and this can also be something that can help move us from a place of presuming on God, of arrogance, into a place of humility where, once again, we're depending on God and walking in step with the Spirit like we should, is we need to realize who we are. And we are creatures who do not know the future. Life's unpredictable. There's an uncertainty about it. Basically, in 14, what he's saying there, in verse 14, he's saying, listen, you make all these plans with your chest, you know, poked out. You're boasting in your arrogance about all that you're going to accomplish and all the places you're going to go and all the things that you're going to do. Yet in verse 14, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Y'all, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what tomorrow... How humbling is that? Think about that. We don't have the ability to look past this nanosecond that's coming next in my life. We don't have the ability to see into the future at all. Think about all the impressive things that man's been able to accomplish. Think about man's ingenuity, the impressive things that man's been able to invent... Uh, man can reprogram computers, create technology like the internet, perform heart transplants, uh, you know, build technology or create technology like the internet. They can do we, all kinds of build skyscrapers, send people in the outer spray, space, but no one can tell the future. No one knows what tomorrow will bring. The only thing that we can know about the future is what God's chosen to tell us about the future. You know why? Because he knows the future and we don't. That is encouraging that he hasn't just left us hanging with nothing about the future. He's given us what we need to know about the future that can help us as we walk through this world with a heart of faith. We can hold on to and embrace and cling to that will cause us and help us not lose our mind like the rest of the world does. The big things he gives us, right? He, we know that he's coming back again. We know that we're going to spend eternity in heaven. We know that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and even into the future. He reveals to us the things that we need to know. But there's so many particulars between at this moment right now and between now and next Sunday that we do not know. So many twists, so many turns, so many detours, so many circumstances, so many situations that await us in the next 24 hours, that await us in the next seven days, that await us in the next year that we are completely in the dark about, but God is not. God is sovereign. Did you know God has a master calendar for your life? 
your, your specific, your particular life. So you know what that means? If that's true, God's sovereign. He sees into the future. He's a good God. You know what that means? It means as good as it is to plan and to organize and to prepare, we never forget that as a humble disciple, we never presume on God. We never move forward without an attitude of humility, recognize that he's the God who's in charge. He's the God who's in my tomorrow. He's the God who has the master calendar for my life and he's sovereign and can be trusted. He has, he has a will that he's unfolding. He has a plan that's perfect for this world and for your life. And it's unchanging and it's immovable. Should that not cause our heart posture to be different when we move forward? Should that not slay arrogance and pride in our life? Should that not cause us to approach our planning differently? See, the posture of our heart should look different. Verse 15 says, instead of, instead of you know, approaching life that way, like you got it by the tail, and like you, you are promised tomorrow, instead in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, it will live like this or that. It's about being surrendered to His will, yielded to His ways, yielded to His master calendar for my life. Now, what that does not say, that doesn't mean you just tag the Lord willing, you know, to everything you say. That's not what that means. Sometimes people do that. I'll see you guys next week, Lord willing. That's fine. I mean, that's good. Just don't, it just doesn't need to only be a thing you say, right? We'll go on vacation. What's the other one? Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I'm not sure what that means. Come and let me know after the service. I'm sure you can find out somewhere what that, where that came from, right? You go to lunch today and somebody says, uh, you, you say, hey, can you, you know, pass the salt? Lord willing, I'll pass the salt to you, you know? Like you might get a plate passed at your head, right? So if the, if the Lord wills, like in other words, don't make this a cliche. This is to be a heart conviction. This is to be a posture of the heart, Right? And when it is the case, and Jesus is my Lord, and God is in charge, and I am aware and believing in my heart that He holds my tomorrow, when I understand deeply, and I'm aware of how deeply desperate I am in need of His grace every single day, and how completely helpless I am on my own, even as a believer, He saved me by His grace, He's keeping me by His grace. It's all by His... I'm completely dependent on Him and His grace. My life is in His hands. I know that I can trust Him. When you have that heart posture and you move forward into your life in that kind, with that kind of humility, what will happen is that even when your plans go a different direction than the plans you had for your life, you'll be okay with that. Because I trust you. You're in charge. This leads to a really good biblical tip for your life. Hey, plan. Hey, some of you are planners. How many of you are planners? All right. Seven of us in here are planners, really? We need help. All right. More of you raised your hand. How many of you are married to a planner? A lot more of you, okay? That's usually how it works. We like to plan. Some of you get together and have little calendar parties and make sure you and your husband or you and your spouse are on the same page. Some of you, your husbands don't have a calendar. You just tell him where to be and what to do and what to wear. Amen. <laughs> so planning's good. Planning is essential. Planning, being organized, creating agendas, that's good. But what James would say is make sure you plan in pencil. Make sure you plan in pencil because God often changes our plans. And if I can learn to not presume on God with pride and not arrogantly and pridefully make my plans in Sharpie, but I can humbly plan in pencil, then what happens is when the unexpected does happen and do we really need to like sit around and like give examples of unexpected things, like i.e. the last two years of our life? 
If that's your heart posture, when you collide with the unexpected and it's different than your plans and you've written it in pencil, then you're prepared not to panic, but to pivot and to trust God in a different direction he's taking your life. You're prepared to honor him with your life. To say, you know what, this is the day the Lord's made. Yesterday, this was, I didn't know this would be my today, but here I am and this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice in this day and be glad in it because he's not surprised by what's happening. So I'm going to pivot and not panic and trust him. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it and not complain in it because he is ultimately in control. That's what happens when we, with a humble heart, plan in pencil. We're called to be humble. We're called to depend on God. This is what makes us different than the rest of the world. What's troubling is when you look around at so many so-called Christians and they're panicking and they're complaining and they're losing their minds like a world that doesn't know God. A God who's in control. No, we're humble disciples who plan in pencil, who are able to, to flex, who are able to move in a different direction because we trust God's plans, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult, knowing that He's working. We're different. We're not gripped by worry about our future like the rest of the world is because we understand what worrying is and why it's, it, it, it's really a form of arrogance. Anxiousness is because you're worrying about things about tomorrow that you don't even know will happen. But we serve a God who does. No. And this can help kill some anxiousness because, hey, I'm worrying about things tomorrow that I don't even know is going to happen. And even if it does happen, I serve a God who has a master calendar for my life and who has promised everything that happens in my life. If I'm his, if I'm his child, it's for his glory and for my good. And you know what happens is when you believe that, you get much less anxious about tomorrow. Your mind's filled with way less thoughts, busy thoughts about tomorrow. You get tied up, you get less tied up in your, your, your ventures and your, your trying, to, trying to build your earthly treasures for tomorrow. And it frees up a lot, a lot of more moments to make moments today matter for eternity. I want you to think about that this morning. How many moments this past week, in your days, in your today this last week, in the moment, how many moments did you let pass you by because you were worried about something tomorrow? Because you were tied up into thinking how you could build more earthly treasure for tomorrow. Again, hard work's not bad. Planning is good. Organizing is great. But not at the expense of letting moments that matter pass you by. There are moments today that we can make matter for eternity. Our life is made up of moments. Moment after moment after moment until it's over. in a moment it's over because point two says our life is but a mist not only do we not know the future James is saying in a very sobering way hey it may feel like you're going to live forever and you will somewhere but that your life on this earth will last forever but your life is a mist it's here and it's gone Look what he says. He said, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Some translations say like a vapor. All right. I was thinking this morning about how when I was in middle school and you'd be out by the bus stop on like an occasional 
early northeast Florida frosty morning and with my knuckleheaded middle school friends you're breathing smoke up into the air and watching it and it's there and it's gone this is the puff of smoke coming out of a, an exhaust pipe that, that, that's there and gone. This is the, the mist that sprays out of the Febreze or whatever you call the can that you spray and it's gone. It's here and it's gone. What he's saying is in the big picture of eternity, that's your life. It's here and it's gone. His point is your life is short. Your, your life is fragile. Your life is precious. It's fleeting. It flies by. It appears as a set of moments that sometimes feel in those moments like they're going to take forever. But before you know it, it's a set of moments that lead you to a set day at a set time only God knows and your life's done. And in the big picture of eternity, James says it's like a mist. And the older, the older I get, the more that I realize this. And I know some of y'all are looking at me like, you're young, you don't even know. I'll be 40 this year, all right? Some of you, that sounds young. Some of you, that may sound old, right? But regardless, I know this. I understand what James is saying about right here. Much more now as a 40-year-old man than I did as a 16-year-old man. Much more than I understood as a 25-year-old man. Life's flying by. I think about my kids. I think about my daughter, Emma, who will be 15 soon. I don't even want to think about that. She'll be in a vehicle. She'll be behind a wheel, riding down a road soon. That's crazy that we're here, that that's happening. Like it seems like yesterday she's in the power wheel going down the driveway. And here she is about to drive. It, it, it flies by. It's a mist. And what the enemy wants to do, one of his big objectives for your life, is to keep you in the mindset that you're going to live on this earth forever. That you're promised tomorrow. And what James is saying is you're not. Let me ask you this. I wonder how many of you would raise your... How many young people do we have in here today? All right. Some of you kind of like are, are not sure, you know? How many of you have your hand raised because you feel young? You know, you feel young, all right? Let me say this. If, if you did not raise your hand... I would say that was a wise decision. Now, some of you are like, that's why I don't do these little surveys, because I knew it was a trick. <laughs> but if you raised your hand, you raised it illegit- illegitimately, and here's why. If you're, I, I, what did I ask? I said, who in here is young, right? Who in here is young? How do you know that? Because if you're 35 and you die when you're 40, you're an old man. If you're 65 and you live to be 95, well, you're pretty young. So what James is saying, you just don't know. You don't know. And we do not like thinking about this. This is why we tuck cemeteries away off the road where nobody has to see them. I was talking to Brandon earlier this week. Sometimes we discuss the passages that I'll be preaching on. And, and I get to hear about the sermon that he's preaching on Wednesday nights. And he was telling me about a podcast that he was listening to that was explaining one of the, the lost benefits spiritually of back in the days when the cemetery would actually be right there next to a church. That kind of creeps us out now because it's just, we're not used to it. But you, what, what it would do for your life is you literally, you could not go and worship God without walking past the truth that your life is but a mist. Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon 
makes a point on this as well. You know, at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, a man who had everything. Think about this, Solomon, the richest man to ever live. No billionaire today, Jeff Bezos, none of those guys can touch the amount of wealth that he had in his day when you kind of scale it out compared to today. And he got his hands on everything that, that creates so much anxiousness for us. So many things that we think if we got our hands on, our problems go away. He, he tasted every worldly pleasure. He got in his grasp every earthly treasure. And you know what he said at the end of his life after experiencing all that? He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's the Hebrew word havel. He uses it over 30 times in Ecclesiastes. It literally means vapor. It literally means uh, breath. Kind of that same word that you see in James. But it has a deeper meaning at times throughout Ecclesiastes. And it means meaningless. It means it's meaningless. He's saying, I accomplished everything you can accomplish that everybody in this world will tell you if you get to the top of that mountain, you'll find happiness and satisfaction. And I'm telling you, there's nothing there. Meaningless. And you know what he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 7? This man right here, he said, you know what? I've looked back on my life and I realized this. It's better for you to go to a funeral than an extravagant party. Because at a funeral... You're confronted with your mortality, that this life on this earth doesn't last forever. And James is reminding us of that, that life is uncertain, that it's brief, that we aren't promised tomorrow, that life is a mist. Listen, your heart can stop beating at any minute. We're not promised that we'll make it here to our house without getting into an accident that could potentially take our life. Anything can happen at any given time. That's how fragile life is. And James kind of wants to make us feel uncomfortable and get in our face and remind us of that. Hey, he's not saying you can't try to stay young. Hey, do it. Hey, dye your hair. Put stuff on your skin. Work out. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Right? Stay fit. Hey, we're talking about a plan. Have a fitness plan. Right? That's great. Make you feel better. It's good. I'm serious. It's good. Be a good steward of your health. Right? Be like, well, lose some weight. If you feel like you need to lose some weight, be like the guy who was on the scale, uh, you know, the guy who was on the scale in his, in, in his bathroom, uh, you know, weighed himself, and his wife came by and he was sucking in his gut. And she goes, You know, that's not going to help you. And he said, Yes, it will. And she goes, No, it will not. He goes, Yes, it will. Sucking in his gut. She goes, That will not help you. He goes, Yes, it does. And she goes, How is that going to help you? He goes, It helps me see the numbers right there that I'm trying to look at. <laughs> Listen. Do all that. Nothing wrong with that. It's good. But listen, never lose the awareness that life is fragile. There's a fragility to it. There's a brevity to it. There's an uncertainty about it. Job 7, 7 says, remember my life is like a breath. Psalm 102, 11 says, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither like grass. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It means every moment is precious. Now think about these guys. Your life's a mist. You're not promised tomorrow. He seems to be trying to draw their attention to today. They're so busy presuming on God, obsessing over building their treasure for tomorrow, busy making their lives and their plans as if they're promised tomorrow. And what they're missing is is moments that matter today. Listen, the devil wants to sell you the lie of tomorrow. Please listen to me this morning. The devil wants to sell you the lie of tomorrow. And so many of us buy it. And we let moment after moment slip under the bridge of our life and don't understand how dangerous that game is of tomorrow and how destructive it can be. 
The song that captured this in the folk, kind of pop folk music scene in the 70s was a song written by Harry Chapin that still resonates powerfully today, and I want you to listen to this. He wrote, My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it, and as he grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I, I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but a smile never dimmed. And he said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, I'm going to be like him. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, a little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know, we'll have a good time then. Well, he came home from college just the other day. So much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head. And then he said with a smile, what I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow your car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find some time. You see, the, the new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, the little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home? Son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You know we'll have a good time then. Then. The dangerous game of tomorrow will have dangerous consequences attached to it. Hey, hey, tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be my day. Tomorrow, I'm going to really, when things settle down, when work gets less busy, then I'm going to, I'm really going to, I'm going to carve out the time that I need to carve out to be the dad that, that the Bible's calling me, the husband that God's calling me, the mom that God's calling me to, the wife that God's calling me to be. And I don't want you to hear me wrong. Work hard, provide for your family, but never forget at the end of life what will matter. The Bible shows you what will matter. I've never heard of anybody on their deathbed at the end of their life muttering their last words going, hey, hey, he's talking. What is it? Hey, go get me that watch. At that company that I spent 40 years of my life working for gave me at my retirement party. I just want to look at it one more time. In that moment, things that truly matter will matter to us. What matters will come into view. And you know what you'll learn on that day? You won't be able to take any money with you. You won't be able to take the nice Rolex watch with you. With You You won't be able to take all the things that can consume our minds and, and make us kind of think about tomorrow at the expense of losing moments today. None of that. But you know what you can take with you in the kingdom of God? Memories. Memories of the moments that align with God's will, dependent on His Spirit. I made moments count for the glory of God. You say, I hear you, but here now you're starting to think about Moe's. You think about five guys. You think about where you're going to go to eat. And you think about what you're going to do for the rest of the day. Some of you are thinking about tomorrow. Tomorrow. I hear you, but you're playing the game. The dangerous game of tomorrow. It's like the guy who went to work and said, man, isn't it great to wake up at 
four o'clock every morning and to run seven miles and to swim 50 laps and to eat a healthy breakfast and to read a chapter in a book before you come to work. He said, hey, when did that start? He goes, it started tomorrow. And as silly as that sounds, man, we're tomorrow people. Are you guilty this morning of being a tomorrow person tomorrow? I will get into a small group tomorrow. I'll start to be generous tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'll I'll give more of my time. Tomorrow, tonight, I'll start reading the Bible with my kids. Tomorrow, I'll start leading my family spiritually. Tomorrow, I'll I'll get some things off my plate so that I can begin to spend moments in ways that matter for eternity. Tomorrow, I'll join this church. Tomorrow, I'll get baptized. Tomorrow, I'll I'll call her and we'll get this right. Tomorrow, I'll extend the forgiveness that that I know I haven't extended and and let go of the bitterness that I've been harboring. Tomorrow, I'll put the drink down. Tomorrow, just one more hit. Tomorrow, I'll get the help that I need. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll share my faith. Tomorrow I'll, I'll, I'll begin that ministry that God has placed on my heart for all these years. Tomorrow we'll get to it. I just I got a little more stuff to take care of. Tomorrow I'll surrender to a call to missions. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'll get saved. I'm not quite there yet. Tomorrow, and what James would say in verse 14: You do not know what tomorrow will bring. The enemy promises that there's always tomorrow. He says, there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow until there's not. And your life, you realize, was a mist. Let's pray. I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. Because this is a passage that is written to believers. And I want to remind you of something as we move into this. If you are a follower of Christ you never forget that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He took the condemnation that you deserve so you don't have to walk around feeling condemned all the time. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died on the cross to extend grace to you that covers all sins. You ready? Even the sin of letting moments pass you by that you could have made count for eternity even seasons of our life when we lived in unhealthy ways for things that didn't matter. There might be things you need to confess like related to that, but if if you've confessed those sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of those sins, cleanse you from all righteousness. That's written to believers. Listen, you can't change the past. This is a convicting sermon that makes us think about the past, but we're not to dwell on the sins of our past and on things that we can't change. What this is showing us is, hey, you're here. You've got air in your lungs. You've got a heart beating in your chest. And what that means is God's giving you His grace to move forward and to make moments right now today count. To begin to make moments matter for eternity. So as we move into a response time, well, it's just a review. Life is brief. Yes, we should plan. Yes, we should work hard. Deeply dependent on God. Recognizing Him as the God who numbers our days. We should waste less time being anxious about what we don't even know is going to happen tomorrow. We should stop obsessing over things that aren't going to matter. While neglecting things that do. And may we stop buying the lie of tomorrow. What is the Holy Spirit showing you? How do you need to move forward and respond? You know what uh, James says in the last verse in that passage.
He says, if you know something to do and you don't do it, it's sin. Remember that as we move into this moment. To push that next thing off to tomorrow and to know you shouldn't is sin. I want you to be encouraged this morning. In a moment, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that you can move forward with hope this morning and make moments count. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation, the Bible says, not tomorrow. You step forward, you obey the Spirit's leading in your life, and let's respond in a way that honors Him.